This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Good morning, everybody. We're broadcasting today, not from Ronwood, Ireland, as you would expect, but from a beautiful location, the Amethyst Healing Center in beautiful County Clare. And we have with us today three very, very special people who were pioneers in their work uh, back in the day, and Hannah will tell you exactly when the day was, who have grown in their experience and their knowledge in what they offer to the world, and we are really happy to be speaking to them. Beautiful Ahano will give you some information about Well, Angel Rose speaks about County Clare like she was born and reared in the place, and it is indeed the ancestral home of the O'Grady's. And not only that, but it's also the birthplace of one of Ireland's famous high kings, that of King Brian Boru. He was born very, very short distance from where we're broadcasting today, and his palace is still to be seen in the area of King Cora on the banks of the River Shannon. Now, we're going to be speaking with Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward, and Carmel Byrne, who are the founders of the Amethyst Resource for Human Development. And Alison first came to know Frank Lake in 1968 through a Dutch friend whom she would drive to Nottingham from London every two weeks for her to see Frank. Alison had no knowledge of psychology or psychiatry in those days and was immediately struck by Frank's obvious knowledge of what was bothering his patient. She learned from his theories that a person's birth determined the way they lived and the detrimental life patterns that could result. She read his tome, Clinical Theology, dated in 1966, and she was completely blown over by his teaching. It all made obvious sense to her, although at that time she didn't experience the many seminars, lectures and workshops she attended that her own birth had been difficult. It was to be another 12 years before she experienced her own major birth work with William Emerson in 1979 and a further 30 years before she realised that she had nearly died in a horrific birth caused by the negligence of the midwife attending her birth. So folks, we're in for a very exciting time speaking today about pre- and perinatal psychotherapy. But to speak a little bit more about Alison's background before we introduce her, she, she talks about Frank Lake's work that made such an impression on her. She went ahead and attended the clinical theology seminars and workshops so that she could learn as much as she could and digest as much as she could. And then she enrolled in the full-time counselling course to take place in London at the Westminster Pastoral Foundation in the early 1970s. And at the same time, humanistic psychology arrived in the United Kingdom with Quasitor, the first growth centre in Europe to be opened in London. Here, Alison attended workshops in growth and personal development for the next four years. It's interesting to note that the first diploma in humanistic psychology was launched in 1976 at Quasitor with Frank Lake on the founding committee. And humanistic in the title was derived from Carl Rogers' notion of self-actualization. 
Alison then moved on uh, studying for years, two years after that actually, in a counselling project with colleges in London. And then in 1976 she joined the staff at Frank Lake's Lingale Centre in Nottingham where she worked as a pastoral consultant with him for three years. I'm, I'm telling you this because all of this will begin to make sense to you as we work through our programme today. Alison worked consistently with Frank helping him run groups and also building up her own practice at the same time within Lingdale. And it was in Lingdale in 1976 that Alison met Shirley Ward for the first time. And that began the work of the Amethyst Resource Centre for Human Development, which they started in Ireland in 1982. And that is where we are today, speaking with them on their 30th anniversary. Now, Part of Alison's work involved travelling to Northern Ireland, to Dublin and to Cork to run groups based on Frank's work. Frank himself visited Ireland, North and South, and a regular contingent of Irish frequented both Alison and Frank's workshop at Lingdale. Alison also continued developing her own knowledge and personal growth by attending workshops in the late 1970s and 80s in America and England with Will Schultz on group leadership, uh, Broy Joy on meditation and visualization, Virginia Satir on family therapy, Wayne Dwyer, author of Pulling Your Own Strings, Paul Rebelo and the Hero's Journey, Healing with Rosalind Bruer, who was to become a personal friend and a frequent workshop leader for Amethyst-sponsored workshops. A month-long course with Dr. Stan Groff in Esalen, Big Sur, California, where he was developing his breathwork. And it was here in Big Sur she also met Paul Rebelo, whom she later invited to Ireland in 1986 to do a workshop in Amethyst. Alexander Lowen and Bayer Energetics, workshops in California and England run by William Emerson and pre- and perinatal work and shock and trauma and Jean Houston in Ireland in 1987 on The Possible Human. She also attended a general group work course run by the Institute of Group Analysis in London in 1973, and it was this wealth of knowledge that she eventually brought into her work and encouraged her students to go to the best in the world while they can. So she left Lingdale in 1979, and then she worked and moved actually to Northamptonshire and ran workshops together with Shirley in Bedfordshire and other centres in England. And it was in the summer of 1982, whilst on holidays in California, Alison was meditating with the amethyst that her mother had left her when she died, looking at all the wonderful facets of this beautifully cut stone, over 90 in all. The thought occurred to her that with so many facets, the amethyst could be the symbol for anything to do with health and healing, sheltering under its umbrella. The idea was conceived, but put on hold for a time. The idea developed much quicker than anticipated, and on the 4th of December 1982, which was the day of her mother's birthday, amethyst was born. There was a difficulty in describing amethyst until one day a group participant likened it to an old-fashioned cartwheel with spokes going out from the centre hub all over the world. Alison still has the passion for the work and her birth scripts have helped her build into her life endurance, perseverance and an ability to know things will ultimately turn out positively. We're in for a great show here today, folks. Stay tuned. Now, let me give you a little bit of background before we proceed to our interview full uh, proper, because I want to tell you about Shirley, and Shirley was born in war-torn England, and that really had a profound influence on her life, as we will find out. She was conceived in 1940 and born when the bombs were dropping in Peterborough in September 1941. 
What a time to become pregnant, she says of her mother. When I see countries ravaged by war, my thoughts always go to the babies and children being born during these times and how they cannot possibly be unaffected by the shock and trauma of such man-made atrocities. And this is what drives her work to this day. So she goes on to say that as a child she always loved being outdoors and roamed the country lanes and fields. So it's no wonder that her first profession was a physical education teacher after training in the Bedford College of Physical Education. Sport particularly hockey, was her world. But at the age of 24, she was unable to continue because of a knee injury, and it took her out of physical education activities altogether. She was later to find out that the knee injury originated as an intrauterine and birth trauma. And in fact, she had not walked properly even until, since she was six years old. So that, but that really was what drove her into the whole field of pre- and perinatal psychotherapy. Then she met Alison and she was dumbfounded because here she was walking around in one caliper and she met Alison who had both calipers on both legs due to polio when she was 20. And the caliper that she wore, Alison, that Shirley wore on her right leg, she left it in the car for fear of what people might think. So she says that we only had one decent leg between us and my heart sank. However, it wasn't to last. Alison had been well trained by Frank and was a natural to work with and they didn't have to stand on the floor so they had, didn't need their legs. They lay down and with dogged determination, courage and clarity and the ability to be spot on with what was going on with people was a joy to be working with and they revealed many, many things about the past and especially the time from birth to conception. So this is the calibre of the people who we're speaking with today and we will also go on to speak with the third party in Amethyst which is Carmel Byrne but we will have to leave her of necessity until we speak to both Alison and Shirley first. Now Shirley went on to meet Alison Breer in 1981 in Los Angeles and she regards Rosalind as being one of America's finest energy healers. Not only did her work influence the way in which she worked, but for 30 years they shared a wonderful relationship with much joy and laughter amidst the trials and tribulations of life. And one of Rosalind's great philosophical statements was, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. That's a good start for us today. So, let us go ahead and introduce you now to Alison Hunter. Okay, we're speaking with Alison Hunter. And we've broken our interview into several different parts. For the beginning part, we're speaking to Alison Hunter, who's the founder of the Amethyst Resource Centre for Human Development, which was founded in 1982. And we're now speaking to her at the 30th anniversary, which is a very, very significant time period. Then we're going to move on to speak to Shirley Ward. Shirley Ward is one of her partners. And further, we're going to speak with uh, Carmel Byrne, who looks after the child development side of the business. And then we'll come back to a summary at the end. But for the moment, let's speak with Alison Hunter. I have been blessed myself to have been a client of Amethyst in the 1990s. It was my first encounter, my first in, uh, meeting with Alison and Shirley and Carmel. And it led to really the unfolding of my own spiritual growth. And I was always fascinated by the very concept of amethyst because it is a healing stone. 
So, Alison, can you tell us about where you, where you found the name or why you decided to use the name Amethyst in the beginning? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the amethyst that is our symbol came from my mother when she died. And my father had given it to her when they were for their 20th wedding anniversary. And it's a very ancient stone that comes from, from Georgia. And I was in the States with a guy who was into crystals. And so I brought it out and was meditating with it one day. And to my surprise, the idea came that... I should found something called amethyst because of all the many facets that there are on the back of it and so that anything could take place under the umbrella of amethyst. And this was too much for me at the time and I decided to put it on the back burner. However, after I came home, it wouldn't stay on the back burner. And so in December 1982, I had a dinner party on my mother's birthday, the 4th of December. And that was the inauguration of Amethyst. And I have always regarded Amethyst as something or somewhere where anything to do with health and healing could take place. So it's not going to be single-minded here, there, or anything, but can be universally wide um, as far as health and healing goes. That's a fantastic story. So I particularly, being American, and having just met you today, uh, and not really knowing much about amethyst, I am quite interested in how you, how did you develop it, what what were the therapies that you began with? Uh, how did the whole thing start? And what kind of clientele did you have? And, you know, basically a bit of evolutionary history with it. Well, to start with, I was over in Ireland doing primal integration work, which I'd learnt with Frank Lake. But this is far, far wider. And to start with, we had no premises except the house I was living in. And I vividly remember a workshop that Shirley and I, no, Shirley was going to take around Easter time, and we had nowhere to have it. So it was like it was a a travelling workshop that we had in different places. And really that, that, was, that was one of the first workshops that Amethyst had. After that, we got premises not far from where we lived which you could see whales on a clear day from from the windows and there we got lots of people coming we would have different speakers every Friday night um, on a different aspect of therapy spirituality healing just whatever and out of that um, many people got interested in the kind of work we did and we used to run workshops up there and um, we had that for two years 
until I moved down to County Clare, there was never a, an actual static place that could be called Amethyst. Because to start with, I believed that Amethyst wasn't supposed to be a place. It was supposed to be out there somewhere. And uh, it was described to me by one of our first clients in a way. I remember her clearly being on this travelling workshop where, incidentally, she met her husband, who called it like one of the old-fashioned cartwheels with amethyst as the hub and spokes going out all over the world. And it seemed to me that that really described what, what amethyst is. Well, it is a, a fantastic testament to you, Alison Hunter, that amethyst is still going strong today after 30 years. And you were pioneering that whole business of getting professional speakers to speak about the growth of awareness and the development of consciousness and the uh, growth of personal power back in those days. And it's a joy to be with you here and speaking with you today about it. Now, you mentioned that Amethyst is not a place, but I have to paint a picture for our listeners because, as we know, most of our listeners are in the United States of America, although we have a growing following in Ireland, and those in Ireland will certainly be familiar with what I'm going to tell you about now, but from the window of the Amethyst premises in County Clare, we can actually see the longest river in the British Isles. It is the River Shannon, and it's absolutely exquisite, especially when the sun shines. Now, we know it doesn't shine every day in Ireland, but when it does, there is absolutely no place like it. There are horses grazing in the fields, there are sheep on the hills, there are farmers with their uh, hay being gathered at this time during the summer, and it is absolutely exquisite. So, the the principles, I guess, on which Amethyst was founded are actually very evident in this location. Do you want to say anything about the particular location that you choose for Amethyst at this point in time? Well, it was a miracle how we came here because Shirley and I were in contact with somebody down here and we were talking about healing centres and we came down to see her and she brought us over um, over to this part of, of Clare and to a friend of hers who was hoping to have a healing centre in her house. And I knew, I, I looked out the window of her kitchen and I knew that this was the place that we needed to be. So I said, well, do you know anybody who's got a field for sale over here? And um, immediately she said, oh yes, she said, I've got a friend who's got a field and it's got a holy well in it and it's got a, an Iron Age fort and um, he's got, and it's got planning permission and he needs to sell it quickly. Like that, within two weeks, I'd bought the plate the ground, because I had the funds available at the time, and I had bought the ground, and uh, then I had no house to put on it. And uh, a friend at the last minute stepped in and bought a mobile home for me to live in, because I was being chucked out of my place in, in Wicklow anyway. And that's where we've grown from there. 
Well, you certainly did pe- pick a little piece of heaven, that's for sure. Yes, it's absolutely beautiful because I'm sitting here looking out over these hills. But it's more than that. There's a, a wonderful, peaceful, comforting energy in in the space that we're in where I could see it feels very nurturing if I had to use a word. Very safe and nurturing where you could spend a lot of time here just healing even if you never had a session from either of these beautiful ladies. So it, it is absolutely a special, special spot for sure. But Ahano, I'm interested. You said that uh, you found Shirley and Allison by coming to Amethyst yourself. So what did you come for? And tell us about your experience. Well, I'm glad you asked me that because everything that we're speaking about today is has to be measured against that personal experience. And we want to encourage our listeners to contact Alison or Shirley or Carmel and make an appointment yourself, which you can do uh, by contacting them through the holistic.ie forward slash amethyst website and i'll call out that address throughout the program do make contact with them because they have a variety of programs ranging from pre and perinatal psychotherapy all the way through to working with children and dealing with narcissistic issues and various other types of uh, titles of their programs that we will go through before we reach the end of the program today but for myself I had come through a tragedy of my own where my first child had died and I had no understanding around what was going on. It was that that same questions, why me, why me, why me? It seemed everything, the, the world was centered around me at that point in time and why was I suffering like this? And then why did my child die and how, what, were the, what was death all about and where did a child go when it died? And then you had, I had at the time religious people coming to me and asking me, like, was the child baptized? As if somehow a baptism would have prevented the child from dying in some way or that it would somehow make it a better person and these were questions that I had no answers to and I came to Amethyst sometime in the 19 early 1990s I think it was and I did find the answers because they were working a program at the time it was about healing from a beautiful perspective and it was involving energy work and spiritual development and I came away from that really really renewed and uh, with a huge understanding about how life worked and it helped me to come to terms with the loss of my baby at the time so I'm very very grateful for the work that you have done but on top of that I'm I'm continuing to be in awe with the amount of research that the three of you do because you work at all kinds of different levels and you've come from this huge background of psychotherapy that I mentioned in the beginning of the program, having worked with all these great names in clinical theology and so on. And really, it's, it's a tribute to you to be still going at this point in time, 30 years later, and especially in this big time of change that we're in right now. Well, I would still like to know about the, uh, the prenatal program. I, myself, am fascinated with the whole idea of what occurs in the womb and occurs at birth. So if we could ask either Allison or Shirley, to talk to us about that. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, so let's turn the fl- over to, the, to uh, Shirley Ward and ask her about her programs on pre- and perinatal psychotherapy. Well, from my own background, um, 
and the trauma and pain that I was going through in my younger years, everything seemed so irrational. And it was in the 1970s when I was studying at Leicester University that I came across the Clinical Theology Association, of which Frank Lake was um, the founder in those days. And I didn't know the work he did, but I was recommended to uh, to go up to Nottingham to the Clinical Theology Association, and it was here that I met Alison. And I really had no idea what I was going into. But I bless the day that I found Frank and his work and Alison, who was a pastoral consultant working with him. Because what happened was I was put on the floor onto a mattress, had no idea what was going to happen, and was taken through my birth process, just from conception to birth. And I remember distinctly coming out of that birth process and remembering the first breath of fresh air I took as that baby. And it was an incredible experience. Because I was born in Wartorn, England, and knew that this had had a profound effect on me. But it wasn't until I actually re-experienced my birth that I realized what it was like to be born in an area where there was war and I have an enormous concern for people being born in the countries where there there is war and where there's strife and what's happening to the individual and the character of people and so my whole life I have dedicated anyway the last 35 years I've dedicated to helping people find out why so many things in our lives with pain and trauma seem irrational and we don't know where these come from. And so when we go as far back as conception and the experiences in the womb and then the experiences of birth, this is where we can find out and it can actually change our lives. But Shirley, how did he actually take you back into that experience? I want details. There are many ways in which you you can do this, but with with Frank and Alison, the way Alison worked, and she had been trained by Frank Lake, I remember it took quite a time for me to actually get on the floor. It was like I knew I was going into something and someplace I didn't want to go into. And this, in a way, was the real pattern of my conception too, because it is just as easy to go through a conception trauma and know whether you wanted to incarnate or not. And, of course, we can go right back to um, the incarnation, uh, whether we wanted to incarnate or not. And, And so many people today are still in the place where they just did not want to come into this physical life. And I think that this blends also with the sort of spiritual, are we a spiritual being that comes into a physical body. So then you don't think that everybody chooses to be born here on purpose then? No, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I know I don't believe that we all choose. <sighs> I had the experience of someone actually saying to me, well, uh, you know, I, I come through. It's like when there are two or three in the womb, when there are two or three um, embryos in the womb, and then two are lost. And one comes through and, and is the surviving twin or the survivor of the, of the triplets. 
that the the tri- the person who has died, the embryo that goes, is a soul, and in fact, this soul may well their job may be to bring us through when we actually don't want to come. And I'm not sure how anyone, say in the 1940s, would want to be conceived in war-torn England. Yes. So Alison disagrees. This is fantastic. Can we have your opinion, Alice? Yes. I mean, I, th- I, I do believe, actually, that at some level we have all chosen to be born, to be conceived. And there must be over 50% of us wanting to come in, even though there's 49% that wishes we weren't here. I mean, certainly over in my work over the years, I've discovered that one of the greatest problems that people come up against that are problems in their lives are that they've never come to terms with their incarnation. A lot of my job over the years has been to help people to come to terms with their incarnation. And I do believe that we choose our parents I do believe that at some level this happens. And for some reason, now we may not discover that reason for years and years and years, but, you know, still 40 years on or so, I mean, I'm still discovering things. So it's not something that you can just do in one session or even a series of sessions, but it's something that you need to go on with for the rest of your life. So does that approach help to answer questions for a family, let's say, who gives birth to an incapacitated child or a child who's diagnosed with ADHD or or indeed uh, they have a rebellious teenager or their grown-up child turns out to be an alcoholic or a murderer. Do you think you can actually go back in time using the techniques that you've developed over the years and bring an understanding about those traumas? Only if somebody wants it. And also I think some pain is so great that actually people can't bear it in this lifetime. So in a sense it would be cruel to suggest that they go back there and discover what it's about because we can only bear so much. Do you think that it's it's not necessary to relive any pain? Uh, is there some way to circumvent or short circuit so that we've, we? Is there another way, in other words, to deal with this trauma without having to relive the pain? Well, I know some people say that a lot of it can be lifted with energy work from the body, but for some of us, me included. I needed to go through all that pain again to become a human being because I'd spent most of my life just not knowing who I was, what I was, or anything. And actually, you know, it's like Frank Lake gave me my life. And since then, I've been finding more and more of my life. And I think the things that happened to us, like I had polio, well... I believe that that was the most perfect disease that I could have for me because of the paralysis, and paralysis can go right back to my mother's womb in different ways. And the thing is that having chosen a life, we then actually have to live in it. So there's, there's no getting away from it, but we can make our lives better. 
Well, there's no doubt that, Alison Hunter, you have done the best with your life in terms of the development of Amethyst also since 1982. Now, you're listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu as we speak to Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward and Carmel Byrne, the founders of Amethyst, on their 30th anniversary. Okay, and, and I'm still interested because I'm over here uh, next to Shirley and since since Allison and Shirley both do this work, and one has such a strong opinion about that we don't always choose to come in, and Allison be- believes we do, there must be a difference in what you discover when you take somebody through this healing journey. So, and I'm also interested in, let's say if I came to you for my first session, what would we hope to achieve by taking me back to my conception what would be the what would the process be like for me in having those memories or taking me back to those memories? Would it help me understand why I am here, or would it help me understand the difficulties I'm having in my life, or what would I discover? Just going back a, a little bit, because one of the ways, eventually, when people get onto the floor, is that we would say curl up in the fetal position on a mattress. And we'd be protected. We have to put cushions around in order to protect people. And we would concentrate on breathing so that the client uh, was breathing more into their body and being much more aware of what their body was saying. When concentrating on the breathing, was a, this is when the client is able to contact feelings and go where the body, mind and spirit need to wander in order to explore where these early traumas are or where they are in the body. And the healing seems to happen when the client regresses to the early trauma and then gains insight and will say, yes, yes, that's what happens. And really, this is where a change of behavior can happen. This is where, this is where the change of behavior happens. And the adult, the adult's behavior reacts now in an adult way, rather than that trauma that has come from the baby or the the child. So that's the sort of reaction that happens. And of course, what we found out was there has to be three parts, because we have to be able to feel the emotional feeling, the physical sensation, and the historical memory in order for a primal trauma to be healed. And so, um, you know, when they are so irrational, uh, the negative approaches to life seem irreparable and unhealable. When you find that place, either in conception or during the womb trauma or at birth, that's when the healing takes place. Okay, so for yourself, who said you were born uh, during a wartime, and you regressed yourself back, obviously, uh, with the help of Allison, to your own birth conception and trauma, what did you discover about yourself being born during that time or being conceived at that time that you felt had impacted you in your whole process of growing up and developing? And are you of the opinion for yourself that you didn't choose to come in here this time? I'm in the opinion that I I did not choose to come in at this time, but I think that somehow I was forced somehow to come through because I have found that I have a job to do. And I have a job to do which is helping people with their spiritual journey and in the whole body, mind, spirit field. 
because I see the first journey from conception to birth as being the first sacred journey that we have in our lives. I feel I'm born to do this. Uh, miracles happened, not in my even in my own journey, but it didn't happen just in the, in the first few years of primal work. It's taken me quite a long time. I know that I had a, a schizoid problem, a schizoid personality problem, and I had difficulty in contacting people and being intimate. And I've known this the whole of my life. And I found the roots of this. I found the roots of my own schizoid personality disorder in the first eight weeks of being in the womb. And I can share this, that it was at a time... uh, There was a time when people were pregnant in those days that the, the doctor inserted a needle into the womb. The accident happened of, of that needle almost penetrating my brain. And I have relived this. And this is a trauma for me that caused, caused me to have a personality problem. And so the, it doesn't actually heal it, but what it does is make you realize there was actually a place where something happened and you don't have to go mad. I didn't have to go mad because... I thought I got something seriously wrong with me. That is uh, really, really interesting. I'd also like to hear Allison's story of what happened to her in that work. Before I pass the mic to Allison, I just want to say that uh, Shirley mentioned that she came in with a job to do helping people in their spiritual growth. And as I've said before, all three of them are indeed doing a tremendous job in doing that. Well, I never remembered anything. And it was ten years after I first met Frank Lake that I actually went through my birth experience and discovered how horrific it really was. And it wasn't because I hadn't wanted to, because I did, and I did lots of useful work for myself during those ten years. But I nearly had my neck broken because there was a midwife, this was a home delivery, There was a midwife there who was obviously terrified of consultants because she'd been told to contact the obstetrician if there was any problem. And it was like being pushed out like toothpaste out of a tube and my head kept banging and banging and banging and banging and banging. And at last, after my father came home from work, he realised that... A lot of distress was taking place, so he phoned the consultant who came straight round and with just with his little finger moved my head and I was able to be born. Um, This has shown me that I will always be rescued, but sometimes or very often it's at the last minute and that's something that I would like to change (laughs) that I can be rescued before the last minute. But it's definitely had an enormous effect on my life because I didn't didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't... I couldn't make out anything. It was like I was a bull in a china shop. And it wasn't until after I'd met Frank and begun to do some work on myself that I discovered me. 
Now, Alison Hunter and Shirley Ward, both of you speak so eloquently about that whole birth trauma experience from conception to birth. But in our work, and especially in our, the area that we're, we have been in for quite some time in North Carolina, a lot of people have mentioned the fact that they are in that area simply because at some point in time, they have a past, a past memory or an experience of having been there before. So my question to Shirley is, do you think that these memories only go back to conception? Or do you think there's some possibility, like the Native American Indians would believe, that there's we pick up soul pieces from past lives beyond birth and conception? Yes, I do believe we go back further. And... I have to mention here the whole idea of fractals. And it was my dear friend and now great American teacher, Jean Houston, who brought me into this realm of fractals in 1991. And fractals really have been discovered by computers. And they are the, the rhythms and patterns of the universe. Um, and what I did when I came back from... Atlanta, where I heard Jean, I put the whole pattern of fractals onto the pre- and perinatal period. And one of Frank Lake's hypotheses in the 1970s was that everything comes into to us at conception. And I really found that that's what happens, that in fact everything that happens to us is comes through at conception. And when I've tried to take this back to um, to past lives. Yes, there have been some patterns that have come out. Uh, I think of um, people who are anorexic. And, you know, this doesn't mean to say that this is with everyone, but what I have found is that an anorexic person has been starved in the womb. There's a certain time in the womb when the feeding stops. And before that, the person has gone through a life of being in famine and so I very often wonder you know we're trying to get rid of famine in the world and starvation but maybe it is one of the learning slopes of of coming in into our our world and to have if we have more than one lifetime then it's been a learning slope or an experience as we come into the next life now I must admit for those people who who don't believe in past lives I have tried another way of looking at this and it could be ancestral memory and ancestral memory of people remembering what their ancestors have been through in the last 500 or 1000 years so there's two ways of looking at this if, if you can believe in um, past lives that's okay but there's another way of looking at it and what about people who are bulimic is it the same thing Yes, I think so. You do? I think so. Yeah, I suppose it would go the other way of people stuffing themselves with food. And, and I, I don't know. I, I actually haven't done any past life work on this, but there's so much, there are so many areas that you could work on with pre and perinatal work and also the problems that we have in our lives. Well, I am somebody who has remembered my conception. I, I remembered it through rebirthing, though. You're familiar with rebirthing, I'm sure. You know, there I saw my parents making love, and uh, I saw that my mother really wasn't happy. 
about uh, being made love to at the time, and I saw her get up and look at herself in the mirror while she was buttoning up her blouse. And there I was as a soul apologizing for coming in now. I was already saying, I'm sorry, but I have to come in now to help bring in this age of peace. And uh, certainly that's been a, a pattern in me my whole entire life about feeling guilty for even being born and having life here. And also the whole not wanted pattern that I've experienced throughout the course of my life. And, and even if somebody loves me tremendously, there's a part of me that says, uh, you know, well, you don't really, you know, you, you don't really want me. You know, it's so contrary. So, you know, I've had that experience. Well, Angelos, let it be known across the airwaves and across the world that I love you. And indeed, let's extend it outward because we also love Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward and Carmel Byrne who have founded Amethyst in 1982. You're listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu as we speak to these three ladies on the 30th anniversary of Amethyst. Now, I want to direct this question at Alison because there's no doubt from what you've told us that you have found you found your niche in life despite being born with polio you you found you found your niche and in the same way uh, Shirley mentioned that uh, without having met you she may also not have known what you wanted wanted to do so many people i think in in this time period really are at a loss they don't know why they're here or where they're going or what they're doing do you think that through the work that you do, you can help people find their path, find their joy in life, find their core purpose in life. Yes, I definitely think that. And I must just correct you in that I was not born with polio. I didn't get polio till I was 20. And if I'd known then what I know now, I probably would never have got it then. But certainly we have had clients who have not been interested in any sort of spirituality when they come to us and even some of the students that we had on our psychotherapy courses. But yet, after they've been with us for a while, the spiritual side comes up and they want to discover their spirituality. So it's a very powerful tool, really, to help people to discover their purpose in life and what they're here for, as you can strip away the layers like the layers of an onion to help somebody to discover who they really are. Well, traditionally, it's at this point in time that we take a short little break, and we'll be back with you in one moment. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. Welcome back. We're speaking with Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward and Carmel Byrne, founders of the Amethyst Resource for Human Development in 1982. Now, one thing that has fascinated me about your work is that you always deal with people who have some kinds of trauma, some kind of 
conception or birth difficulties that's manifesting itself by way of some problems that they're having in their lives. Do you think, surely, that it's possible to come through that birth process with no trauma? Well, as Alison is saying, it's the most traumatic thing that ever happens to us. But that's because we do see the people in therapy who have had difficult births. And and I'm sure that there are people who do not have the trauma or they don't have as much trauma and it doesn't have the effect on their lives. You know, there are people you can say, why, you know, they they go on, they have a great life and it doesn't seem that anything happens to them. Um, maybe that's because they have had a, a good conception and a good womb experience and, and a good birth. But, uh, you know, one of the other things is you can say when you see a family that some of them, they're like peas in a pod, but the characters are so different. And, of course, we are all unique. And so every single one of us has had a unique experience in that process, something that is quite different from anyone else. And, of course, it's going to affect our personality and character and make us different. Okay, well, I I still have to go back to uh, your belief that we don't all choose to come here. And uh, I have to go back to that because I want to ask you, how does that happen then? If you're a soul floating out there and you're not intending to be born uh, onto the earth plane, then how do you get here? How do you get here against your will? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Only, only. okay, I, I said that I didn't want to be here. But somehow, and I said that, um, you know, it was one person's job to come and escort their twin or their triplet into the womb and then they become the the fetus that is, disappears, becomes the, the twin that vanishes. So I do know certainly in our work, Ahano, that we certainly have many people who uh, come to me for reading and their first question is, is this my last lifetime? They don't want to come here. They're not happy that they're here. But certainly what I have found in their records is they do have a purpose to be here. And I do believe one of those purposes is whatever contribution they're bringing to the world, that they may have unique abilities that they've gathered from who knows where, okay, that allows them to help the world in some way, and also their soul development. I do think Earth is a unique place to master the soul on a lot of levels. So what do you think about that? Well, there's no doubt we're in changing times, and I think our understanding of our lives and past lives and indeed future lives is is of paramount importance for us now as we venture through this great uh, adventure that we're in. And a lot of times we're coming from that background of having no memory. And I think this is one of the most distressing things. I certainly find this, that if I, if I could somehow remember where I came from or what my past lives were about or what my sole purpose was, I think I, I may well handle this particular life a lot more efficiently. Now, one of the things that has always really, really uh, excited me about amateur is how you have changed the lives of your clients. You certainly changed my life in the 90s and you have changed many, many lives over the last 30 years. I'd like to hear from you, Alison, what you perceive the future to be 
in terms of how you actually have changed lives in the past? Do you, do you foresee it being the same way into the future? Or do you foresee some kind of a different approach in psychotherapy? Well, at the moment, that's a question I'm asking myself. I don't know what my next step is. I don't think I've finished with life yet. I'm 80, but I feel there is still something that I could or need to be doing, and I don't yet know what it is. So I'm still in the dark as far as that's concerned. Well, in a way, that's very reassuring for us and our listeners because we sometimes think that people who have come from the uh, fantastic educated background that you both have come from that you have all the answers and it's reassuring to know that you know even though you're 80 years of age you're still finding your way you're still dealing with these issues and you're still very very positive about the future and still very much willing to learn Yes, and she doesn't look 80, does she, Hanno? In fact, I'm a little worried about myself after I see her. (laughs) But I, I would like to go back to psychotherapy itself, because there are a lot of people where that's a bad word. Psychotherapy seems to have this label on it. You know, I'm going to be labeled this or that, or I have this mental illness. So obviously your approach is um, advanced compared to what a normal person might experience if they were to go have psychotherapy. So moving on a little bit from the prenatal therapy that you do, Shirley, what else would people obtain from coming to you or Allison or Carmel? That's quite a difficult question because we're working... Carmel particularly is working with children, and I'm sure she'll explain some of her work to you. But we do have to to look at the different facets of people's lives. I'm not sure that you can get away from psychotherapy or psychology in this, because it's looking at personality disorders and things like narcissism, which I think is humanity's secret weapon of mass destruction narcissism which is not understood and you can go from the narcissistic personality disorder which is extreme to the person who is narcissistic in a way that it it is selfishness Uh, it is trying to be in control of um, controlling families uh, controlling a mother who controls daughters and sons a father who controls the whole family uh, so that the whole family really suffer and yet can't put a name to it. So I see these sorts of things as as important and and what we're doing in the future because more and more people are working on themselves, more and more people are trying to find a sacredness and a spirituality. But somehow you can't really go into the depth of spirituality until you understand understand your own personality. She'd have a field day with me. I've never really understood narcissism. Um, so is there a definition or is it just controlling behavior like like you're saying? Is it, is it have an element of things needing to be perfect or people needing to behave a certain way and be perfect a certain way? Yes. And the narcissist is, is the person who is always right. will never see someone else would would never listen to someone else's viewpoint always has to be in control and and doesn't realize they do it and you know i come across husbands who are in the most dreadful situations with with a controlling wife and yet the husband can't leave and doesn't 
And, you know, when it's as bad as that, the only thing that can, they can really do is get out of the relationship. I think I was married to somebody like that once, Hannah. It wasn't me. It wasn't you. No, absolutely not. <laughs> now, I'd love to know from Alison, is the mother aware of, in some way, inadvertently or perhaps innocently causing trauma? Um, would the mother be aware of birth trauma? To a certain extent, some are. And some aren't. And it just depends who you are, whether you recognize birth trauma. I mean, we do have mothers come and bring their children or their babies and say, yes, he had a horrible birth. Mm. But then, you know, there are the others who just think everything was quite normal. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I thought my birth was quite normal until I discovered it wasn't. And another question that we get asked all the time, and it's it's a topic of much discussion, is this whole concept of ancestral healing. And I know from my own experience that when I feel as if I've resolved something, I, I, I really hope or I have that sense that perhaps I've healed something back through my own ancestral line. Do you think that that's feasible? Do you think it's, I mean, there's no way of proving that, but do you think that's a realistic assumption that any time we heal something in ourselves or you you help a client heal, that you're actually healing backwards in time? Well, certainly I believe that I've been able to heal my parents through my life and through the work that I've done on myself Mm. because they were both very good people but very damaged so that they don't have to come back again and go through it all again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure. I can't tell you how or why, but that seems to me to be true. And I, I do believe that we can heal relationships even after people have died. And a lot of my work over the years, I guess, has, has been helping people to do this and also to live knowing what's happened just to remind our listeners, you're listening to Ange Rose and Ahanu, and we are blessed to have in the studio today Alison Hunter and Shirley Ward, who founded the Amethyst Resource for Human Development 30 years ago. So we're delighted to be with them as they celebrate this 30th anniversary. And I do have a question for Alison. Alison, I'd like to know, are you offering any type of training courses for people who'd like to follow in your footsteps? We have done. But we graduated our last students two years ago and we haven't had any since. And of course I've now retired, although I'm very happy to run groups. I would love to have the occasional group to run because that is my forte and it gives me lots of life. And so I I don't know what the future holds. I still have some life in me. Well, we hope we can play some part in letting people know the fantastic work that Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward and Carmel Byrne do as part of the Amethyst Resource for Human Development. Now, we would like to speak to the third party in all of this, Carmel Byrne. So let's give a warm welcome to Carmel Byrne. We're delighted to speak with Carmel Byrne, the trio, the third person in the trio of wonderful ladies in Amethyst, the resource for human development. Carmel, you have done fantastic work over the last 30 years working with children. Can you just just go back in time and tell us how you got involved with working with children in the first place? That's going back a long time. How I got involved, it was a vision of mine. I was in 
doing my own personal therapy with Alison. And I remember having this vision that I wanted to work with kids. Uh, before that, I was nursing with children and I had worked with mentally disabled children. But I really ha- wanted to work really close with children and to really help them. In a regression se- session, I remember I was lying on a mattress on the floor and I saw this child. And she was very ragged. She had tangling, tangles in her hair. She was very dirty and very deprived. And at that stage, I thought it was me. But anyways, it evolved that I actually, when I, I came through that session, I decided I wanted, this was my life's work and I wanted to embark on this. Not having any idea how I would do that. I had a lot of training in various ways, but I was caretaker and amethyst in Anna Creevy Wood in, in, in Scary. So then it evolved that I put out that we save vision. And it was years later that I decided I was living in Dublin and I'm sure Alison was moving down to County Clare. It happened that we needed to move too. And I County Clare would not be a county I would come to. If I was moving from Dublin, it would be Galway. But anyways, it evolved then at the end of the day that I decided I would move down. And in the HSC, they were looking for a play therapist. And she recommended to the social workers me. So I was invited in to do 12 sessions with children there, two kids. And after that, I'm now eight years and about four months there. I have had a lot of, a lot of different cases. A lot of them are foster cases, uh, ranging from two years of age right up to 19. Mm-hmm. And that's as long as they're in care, because they get an extra year after 18 to, for aftercare. In the work, I w- worked with people who have been traumatised from sexual abuse, marriage breakups, and their, their children blame themselves and their mothers and fathers breaking up, and it was all their fault and whatever. Also, basically, I found the work in the beginning wasn't good enough just to be working with children. I decided I needed to work with the parents as well and the social workers, so I formed a team and I requested that the parents would come in. Now, in the beginning, Parents were okay about landing the children in on my doorstep. When they were called into it, they discovered the children can't be the scapegoats anymore. Mm. And a lot of these children were the scapegoats for their families and their parents' problems. Mm. But anyways, we got through it and I worked with... A recent case I've had was a young teenager. She was 14 years of age, week before she took 69 paracetamol. And... She went into hospital, obviously, and they pumped her and did all kinds of everything to her. The week later, she refused to go attend the psychiatrist. So a week later, she was landed on my door, and I said, what will I do with this child? She was self-harming. So the first session, I hadn't a clue what to do. I just let her talk. Her mother was there. She asked her mother to go out, and I remember saying to her, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist. And later on, she told me that's why she came back. So we formed a very good relationship. I saw her twice a week. And her problems was a learning disorder, non-verbal learning disorder. She also couldn't make friends and she couldn't. She had to be home tuition because if she went into a school, she immediately thought paranoia was set in and all kinds of uh, problems. She was on the cusp of bipolar. So what evolved then, she has now, this year, done her junior cert 
which meant going into school to do that. She's also gone to Belgium on her own to an auntie, which she wouldn't think of getting into a bus on her own. She's also done a very special course in Dublin for the high achievers, which she shouldn't be because she's now verbal um, learning disorder. The odds were against her, but now she's made a life. She's got a relationship. She's nearly 16 years of age. She's got a, a very good relationship. Mind you, she minds him more than he minds her, but anyway. She's she's doing very, very well. But the thing that she said about last June, Carmel, I've decided I want to live. Wow. wow. Now, that must be one of the most satisfying things that you could possibly hear from a client, that you, you've, you've brought them past that place of self-harming and self-destruction. It must be a wonderful thing. Do you think... Carmel, that you, you mentioned there that you're you're not a psychotherapist, um, a you're not a psychiatrist a or a psychologist, but you are a psychotherapist. Okay, so do you think those words themselves, you know, the very the very mention of those titles, do you think they put people off in some way, or because you're a very personable and very loving kind of a person? So if somebody met you without knowing what it is that you do. They would be. I would think that they would be healed by your very countenance. Do you think those words harm uh, or, or put a barrier between you and your client? Certainly, if that particular client had a re- thought I was a psychiatrist because she had very bad experience with them, or a psychologist, she would never have. She would w- would walk. And basically, I would not say this to every child or everybody I would attend um, would attend me. Because I feel those two words for children and teenagers are very, you know, put off. Mm-hmm. They just don't want to know. They just don't want to be with them or associate. I don't know why. And you now you've given us a very graphic example of the the huge benefit that you can give to people to families. Can you give us any other similar types of examples of the benefit that you can bring to children through the work that you do? Yes, uh, some years ago I was doing some healing work, energy work with uh, this child. She was about seven months old. Now in the she had a hole in her heart, and she would attend the children's hospital in Crumlin, Dublin, every six months. And the doctor said that when she was two years of age, they would be doing the open heart repair of the heart um, operation. So we brought her in for energy work. And she, the first time I remember, I had her up on the table and she went blue. The mother actually went white, wondering what was happening. Was I going to kill her child? But And she regressed. So, you know, at that, the mother says, that's the way she was born. So basically, she went through the birth process, and she was doing, you know, okay. And she come back each week, same time, same place. <clears throat> so then, the mother went back for the revisited hospital for a checkup, and she came, and she was really excited. Next week, she says, "Look," she says, "they've told me that the hole is mending," and that was, this was the mother's word. But they said that uh, they must have got it wrong. <clears throat> So they went to the, they decided then to um, go through all the x-rays, the tests and whatever the child would have had. And they said, no, this was definitely the child's things. And the mother said, well, I brought her to this girl, um, this therapist. She does healing more energy work and she also does um, pre and perinatal. And they said, oh, no, that's, that's stupid work, you know, that, that wouldn't repair a hole in the heart. So the mother, they said, oh, well, we advise you don't go back. 
after she was coming for about seven months. Mm. So anyways, mother said, well, I'm coming. This is the only thing that's working for the child. Mm. So she came for another three months, went back for another checkup because they brought her back in three months. They didn't trust the six-month one. Mm. And when she went back, the hole was completely closed. Wow. And I feel it was left, it was partly for the the birth, the rebirthing that she did, mm. that she actually allowed herself to go back in to that space where she was born, where the oxygen stopped flowing, there was a heart, a little bit of a hole in the heart, but still it came back to that as well as the energy worked and seemed to help her. Oh, that is commendable indeed. And we're speaking with Carmel Byrne, who's the third party in Amethyst, and we're celebrating with them their 30th anniversary. Now, Carmel Byrne, you you work primarily with children, and is there a, an age bracket with which you would start with a child or you'd finish with a child? <clears throat> yes. If I was doing pre and perinatal work, I could start at six weeks. And people would say, well, what can you do with a child at six weeks? It would be through energy work, a massage of the head, the birth trauma, whatever. If there was a breech birth, you would actually start there to actually gently manoeuvre the child and allow the child to turn in the way that would be a natural birth. And many of the time I've seen a child actually redo their birth and come out the way they should have come out, if there's a should in this. And also forceps births, I would put my hands where the forceps would be because always when you, you touch the head, I can feel where the forceps would be on an energetic level. And I would gently massage that and that would put them into that trauma. They would cry and the cry would be real pre pre birth cry it would be a real prime cry and you know very soon after that they'd be getting up if they were two or three years of age if they were babies well they would be hugged and cuddled and that their mums would always be there I would never do this work alone without parents Uh, obviously because here in Ireland we have a very strict rules and regulations about child protection but I would certainly would not because I'm not the mum and if they go through a birthing experience I would feel that they need to have their mum to nurture and to bond with them not me. So basically what I would do is I, I would do that process, but also the cesarean, we, we would actually, again, with cushions, a circle of cushions, and they can't get out. So to be up against cushions with their, trying to get their head out and trying to find their own way out. And if you do this process for a few times, they will actually make a tunnel and restructure their own birth. And, be, you know, it's almost like a normal birth, and they'll come out the way they were intended to come out because uh, and a mother said after cesarean birth she says before the child had that birthing experience she would always want me to do everything for her this child was four years of age beautiful beautiful child and she says now guess what she's doing it for herself it's such a relief and as I was talking about that there was a remaining child that was um, adopted by this mother and she brought the child to me and she says, look, she says, this child is four years of age. She says, I don't know what the problem is with this birth or they were sexually abused. There was a disabled caretaker that used to look after him at night in the orphanage. And see me, he, no proof, but see me, he did do something with him. But anyways, the child came out. <clears throat> Her hair, no matter what the mother did to tidy up her hair, it was always wild. And she, her eyes was wild. She wasn't focused. They thought she was artistic. They didn't know what 
the problem was. But what happened there was the child wouldn't eat off a plate, so the mother used to have to put the food on the bare floor and the child would eat the food off the floor like an animal. So when she came, she wouldn't focus or whatever. Uh, She'd only shake her head and make this kind of weird sound. That's what I could call it. It was like a satanic sound. It wasn't really a natural sound for a a child of four. So this day what we did was I got the mother to face me and we made a little boat and we put her in, in between us. And I was facing her and I actually held her head. Now the only way she would communicate with the mother would be pull her the mother's hair until the mother nearly screamed the place down. She was really very, very rough with her. And the child, I got the child to look at me and she went into this unmerciful roaring and screaming. Now I thought, we had neighbours around the centre that we were and I thought, well, I'd be up for assault or something here. And I kind of, at that stage kept myself very grounded but felt apprehensive at the same time but I allowed her do this and she went on to do this for 20 minutes non-stop and she came out of it her face was clear she focused her eyes you know she gave eye contact and we, which we could never get this was a really a bonus but after that what she did was um, she went home and that night her mother I said to the mother put the the food on the table, even if it's on the bare table, don't give her a plate yet, just on the bare table and see what happens. And I said, the next night, give her a plate and see what happens. And I said, you know, you don't have to use your china, you can use anything you like, because the mother was a kind of a bit, you know, posh like that, that she had china plates and whatever, believed in that. So she did this, and within a week she was eating at the table, eating her food. She came back for a few sessions after that, just for reviews, and she was fine. And the first thing was, um, a week later, she looked at her mum and she said, Mama. Wow. Now, she said it in a very baby tongue. She's four, but, you know, she was a bit backward about mm-hmm. her development stages, but that would be expected. So that was another mm-hmm. kind of reward for that. Mm-hmm. And I find th- these kids, you know, as in the whole the heart child, I did remember, I said to her, and, you know, you're saying this to a seven-month-old baby, no, she was ten. Sorry, she was ten months at that stage, and she's sitting on the table, and she hasn't a clue what you're saying. And I said, "Do you really want to? Do you really want a hole in your heart to be mended?" And I pointed to her heart, and she hadn't spoken up to this, and she said, "Yeah." Hmm. And that, after that, I felt that healing was started to take place. Wow, wow! That work is commendable indeed, Carmel Byrne. Yeah, I'm just sitting here fascinated by the stories and. You know, so many things go through my mind, and I'm sure our listeners are going to have a million questions when they hear this. But I have two questions for you, Carmel. One is, would you be of the opinion, then, that every cesarean section uh, causes damage to uh, an infant? And number two, um, how do you deal with young children who are going through sexual abuse? Would you still do energy work on them, or how do you approach that? Well, first question about cesarean. Um, I can't judge for that because basically what we would say that, you know, the birth was done for them, they were taken out, so they want everybody to do that for them, to do things for them in life. But yet that can be the total opposite because having said that, they can be very independent. Um, Certainly that's only just one of them, but in some way, you know, they haven't had the push and the pull 
and the trauma of the birth and even the noise of the mother. Now, okay, you go into a labour ward, which I have actually had the pleasure of being at a birth and because the midwife was there, but she allowed me to do the whole thing with the mum. The mum was into all this kind of stuff and wanted me to do that. And that was a big privilege to see a baby be born and hold the baby coming out. But the sound of the mother... Now, OK, I'm sure midwives all over the world will say, well, less noise, please, it's deafening. But sometimes I find it helps the baby in a sense that the baby, you know, is coming out, they hear this sound... And some of these babies are very calm because they have heard the sound of their mum. It's not what the noise entails, the horrible sound or anything like that, but they've actually felt that energy from their mum and they bond very quick. For that, again, it can be very scary, so it can be a two-way process for that. Also, in sexual abuse, it's very, very hard because some of the children have been sexually abused as little babes, as young children, I always, when I work with sexually abused children, I will always look at their eyes, and the eyes will tell me. The darkness in the eyes, there's no life and there's no light. It's almost like they're into their own little world, just like as if they were had autism treats, threats. But the thing is, you know, it's very hard sometimes to communicate with them. So what I do there is play therapy, because I do it non-directive. We have puppets, we have sand trays, we have clay, we've got art stuff, we've got all kinds of everything even a ball can be very significant animals, whatever and I do therapeutic stories so we make up a story and always, always along the way I wouldn't start this off in the beginning of therapy, I would make up a very good, trusting, safe environment and relationship with them therapeutic relationship with them because they are scared, they are very scared, this is another adult, is she going to hurt or harm me and that's very, very difficult for them so to make it as safe as possible as you can and when they get to feel safe with me and form some form of this therapeutic relationship then I open up wider and we go into the therapeutic stories which they can get an animal, two animals and the animal will tell, they'll tell their story but it's the animal that's voicing it. So they can detach from their story and they, I've, they've told me lots of things like what daddy did to them and how he did it and mummy did it. And even, yes, females as well sexually abused their kids. Or if there has been orgies or if there has been loads of other people there and, you know, each and everybody that... This little girl, she was three years of age and when, as I said, we did the work first of building up the relationship and strengthening her ego. Because I find if they're very low egos, you can't work with low ego and everybody knows that. Your ego has to be strong somewhat and to build them up. And she, I remember, got all the, uh, I think there were animals we had at that time, they were in puppets, and she put them all around the circle. And she lay in the middle of the circle and she says, I said, what's this? Can you tell me what's happening here? And she says, they're all the bad men's and they're all around me. And I'm in the middle and I'm very frightened. And at that she started to, cry she got very upset now because she was so little her mum was there and her mum was in a worse state than the child she was crying too so I actually tried to say I I did say to the mum try and hold it now we're with the child and I won't leave you going out in a bad way I'll help you later but now it's the child and she went around in circles 
and she was trying to keep away and she says, oh, he's touching me now. And we had, I had a black puppet, which I still have, you know, black coloured puppet. And she got that and she says, he's going to hurt me. And he, she put the puppet between her legs and showed us very, very graphically what he did. And it was so, so sad. And, you know, the thing is, she did that for about a half hour and then she got up and she went over to play with other toys. I very quickly got rid of the circle because that's a bad memory. We opened the door, we put on music, we all danced and, you know, we had a good time. The poor mum had to really hold it. But I remember um, she went home and her mum said for the first time she saw that she could hold eye contact and her eyes were brighter. So she had to have another six sessions after that. Now, each session were not as heavy as that one, but they were heavy enough for a little girl. But she got through it. And, you know, now she is 12 years of age. No, she's four. No, she's 15. And she's after doing her um, junior cert last year, and she got A's and everything. So, I mean, these are the kind of things that, you know, and it's non-invasive. I don't touch a child ever. Uh, if they're going into that regression, deep regression work, a parent or an adult, a guardian must be there. Because I would adhere to my code of ethics and to child protection. Unfortunately, we ha- we are drawing to a close and we do have to, we run out of time. And this is a shame because the content that we've covered today in our talk with Alison Hunter, Shirley Ward and Carmel Byrne has been very, very extensive indeed. And it looks like we may have to uh, come back and drill down on some of these particular subjects that we've covered because it's not enough really. We've just touched the surface, the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much more content that we need to cover with them, with the marvellous work that they've been doing for the last 30 years. Now, if anybody wants to contact Amethyst, you can do so by going to their website holistic.ie forward slash amethyst or indeed contact us through the program at angelrose at angelrose.com that's a-i-n-g-e-a-l-r-o-s-e dot com yes and i just want to thank uh, our listeners for listening and our guest today this was extremely powerful and i'm a little taken aback with my own thoughts and my own emotions actually so, very enlightening, and I do wish we had more time. I certainly would like to ask Carmel many more questions, so we're just going to have to have her on again. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Until next week, bye-bye. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu.